This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for health care providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment of a qualified health care professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified health care provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. I am Dr. Jeff Burns from Children's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School, and I'm very pleased to be joined tonight with my colleague, Dr. Jessica Moreland. Uh, we're going to begin with a segment uh, with two of the senior authors of the most recent publications on the epidemiology of MISC, uh, Dr. Mike Levine and Dr. Adrian Randolph. And then finally, we will also be hearing from uh, experts uh, on therapy, colleagues from the American College of Rheumatology Guidelines that have recently been published are here tonight to explain um, their thoughts on therapy for MISC. Uh, I'm going to turn now to our colleague, Dr. Mike Levine um, in London, uh, who's uh, staying up very late once again to join us. Mike, I'm going to turn this over to you. Thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, hello, and thanks again for asking me to join uh, this meeting. Um, I'm going to try and describe what we have learned about Miss C uh, following uh, the really amazing explosion of new literature in a very short period of time. Next slide, please. Um, it seems remarkable that it's only four months since at the end of April there was almost simultaneous alerts from the UK, Spain, France, and Italy of new or upsurging patient syndromes uh, as each country experienced the COVID pandemic. And the alerts covered a range of syndromes from Kawasaki disease, myocarditis, and shock. Um, it's also remarkable that the journals have been able to publish so rapidly such an extensive literature, uh, initially case reports, then larger series. Uh, so we now have quite an extensive literature on the disease appearing in a very short period of time. Next slide, please. The first uh, descriptions of the relationship between COVID-19 in timing and the upsurge of Kawasaki disease were from the Italian and French literature shown on the slide. And that documented clearly that there was genuinely an increase in the numbers of patients meeting the case definition of Kawasaki disease occurring some weeks after the COVID-19 uh, epidemic arrived in each country. Next slide, please. From intensive care units, and this is an example from the UK intensive care network, there were reports of patients arriving in intensive care with shock, with syndromes that looked like toxic shock syndrome or Kawasaki disease shock syndrome or macrophage activation syndromes. And this slide uh, shows in the blue line, uh, sorry, go back to the one, the blue line shows the expected numbers of patients with myocarditis, toxic shock syndrome, or macrophage activation syndromes in each week, as against the green line, which was the actual numbers of cases occurring in UK intensive care units. Next, please. What these different reports raised was the question of whether we were seeing a whole range of different disorders all occurring around the time COVID was arriving in each country. And in uh, the editorial uh, to the two major papers describing uh, the experience of the United States, 
I used the analogy of the blind men feeling the elephant, different parts of the elephant in the, and each of them declaring that the whole beast uh, was represented by the part they were feeling. And so where were these reports of Kawasaki disease, toxic shock syndrome, encephalopathy, abdominal disease, all different diseases, or were they one problem? And next, please. So the question I'm going to try and address is, are the different reports describing a single entity or separate disease associations? What is the relationship of the new childhood disease to SARS-CoV-2 infection? What is the epidemiology of this new disorder? What can we expect in the coming mechanisms and what is known about mechanisms? Next slide, please. So are we seeing a set of unrelated inflammatory diseases or is there a single disease with varied manifestations? Next, please. We attempted to address this in the report um, from the UK uh, published in JAMA by looking at the range of different manifestations that each patient suffered. And what we looked at is which patients met Kawasaki disease criteria, had fever and inflammation, had shock or had gastrointestinal symptoms. And what we appeared to be seeing was three different phenotypes. First of all, shown in green, there were patients that were not critically ill. They did not have the diagnostic features of Kawasaki disease, but they had intense inflammation and persistent fever, often with abdominal pain. And uh, then there were a group of patients presenting with shock, multi-organ failure, and with a very um, high proportion of them having myocardial involvement. And then in yellow, there were patients meeting the complete definition of Kawasaki disease. Of note is that coronary artery aneurysms were observed in all three groups. Next, please. The um, report from the California MIS-C response team um, published in um, MMR recently did a similar attempt to define the spectrum of disease. And they used latent class analysis which is a statistical approach which lets the data classify the patients. And they described three different classes of disease. First of all, in red, there were what they called class one disease, where the predominant feature was shock and multi-organ involvement, often with myocarditis. They had raised troponin levels, they had raised BNP levels, they had a high incidence of coronary artery aneurysms, and usually, these patients were serologically positive for SARS-CoV-2 antibody, but negative for PCR. Then the class, what they termed was class two shown in yellow, were patients with predominant respiratory presentation with cough, dyspnea, pneumonia on x-ray, ARDS. And these patients were largely PCR positive for the virus and often negative for antibody. And then there was class three shown in green, where the predominant feature was rash, fever, mucositis, and often meeting the criteria for Kawasaki disease. And these were largely serology positive, but also a third of them were PCR and serology positive. And these three classes were distinguished also by the uh, laboratory findings in terms of troponin levels, fibrinogen levels, BNP, and so on. So we seem to be seeing subclasses or subgroups within the disease defined by the data. Next, please. 
Um, we attempted to see how the new syndrome differed from Kawasaki disease as we knew it before COVID-19 by comparing the UK patients with um, MSC or PIMS as it was called in the UK with uh, the unique database of Kawasaki patients. Uh, Jane Burns's group in San Diego had over a thousand patients with Kawasaki disease on their database and also patients with Kawasaki shock syndrome. And we were therefore able to do a comparison between the new disorder and uh, Kawasaki as it existed pre-COVID-19. And this is a complicated slide. The red arrows point to the MSC patients. And really to summarize what is in this uh, table in the paper, the MSC patients differ from Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki shock syndrome in being older age, having higher neutrophil counts, higher CRP, higher ferritin, higher troponins and BNP levels, but lower lymphocytes, lower albumin, lower hemoglobin and lower platelets. So looking, although remarkably similar in some of the patients to Kawasaki disease, like a distinct disorder. Next, please. We've also attempted to ask the question, how easy is it to distinguish MSC from other infectious and inflammatory diseases with raised CRP and ele ele elements of inflammation by comparing the MSC patients shown in red arrows uh, with uh, over 2,000 patients that we have in the Euclid's database, which is a European uh, 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 funded study we participated in some years ago, which recruited febrile children across Europe. And this is work uh, still in progress. This is unpublished data that um, Claire Wilson is analyzing. But what you can see is that um, the uh, red arrows point to the MSC patients. They have higher CRP levels and lower lymphocyte counts than an extensive range of patients with bacterial infections, viral infections, and other inflammatory diseases recruited over a five-year period of time. Next slide, please. So concluding the clinical spectrum, it appears that we are dealing with a single disease, but with a very wide spectrum. They have in common fever and inflammation, but there is a range of presentations, including presentations resembling Kawasaki, atypical Kawasaki, myocarditis, shock and multi-organ failure. But coronary artery dilatation or aneurysms can occur in all the groups. There also appears to be an overlap between acute COVID-19 and MSC. The laboratory features are distinct from Kawasaki disease, in, and particularly there is a higher CRP and a lower lymphocyte count than in other febrile illnesses. But I think we have to conclude we have real difficulty in distinguishing this spectrum of diseases from many other childhood uh, febrile conditions because there is no diagnostic test and because there is no absolutely defining clinical feature which is unique to the new syndrome. Next slide, please. Turning to the relationship between MIS-C and SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, um, the first clue was that there is a time gap between the upsurge in cases of MSC and the upsurge of cases of COVID in, uh, as it, the pandemic evolved in each country. And this is the UK data where it appeared that MSC was a, a, a lagging approximately four weeks behind the um, COVID uh, uh, upsurge. Next slide, please. 
There was remarkably similar findings from the two studies in the United States, Elizabeth DeFort's study and Laura Feldstein's study. Uh, the New York data on the left uh, shows the um, MIS-C patients in red bars, the blue shows COVID-19, and we can see again about a four-week dif difference between the rising cases of COVID and that of MIS-C. Should also note that the numbers of COVID-19 cases are in hundreds, whereas the numbers of MIS-C patients are in single units, indicating a very marked discrepancy between the frequency of the two conditions. And similar, the findings across the United States in uh, the um, Feldstein study. Also in the map below showing that the MIS-C is occurring at the same sites that we're seeing high numbers of cases of COVID-19. So the disease seems to be occurring a month after COVID appearing. Next slide, please. And a very similar finding in the French epidemiological data again showing a four to five week delay in MIS-C appearing after COVID, but also showing on this slide that as the disease came under, as COVID came under control in France, the incidence of MIS-C uh, declined markedly and that's continued. And also showing that the MIS-C occurs in the same hotspots where COVID-19 is occurring. Next slide, please. So I think from the epidemiology, we can conclude that MIS-C is a disease that's related to the epidemic curve of COVID-19. It occurs approximately a month after the epidemic case, uh, peak. Most cases are negative for virus, but positive for antibody against SARS-CoV-2. We can therefore expect MIS-C to be rare in countries where the pandemic is controlled. MIS-C will continue to be a serious problem in countries where the pandemic remains uncontrolled, and I think the implication is that this is a disease that is prevented by the public health measures that control COVID-19. Next slide, please. Coming to mechanisms. And here we really have to say that we don't know what the mechanism in this disease is. But the really strong clue is the timing, that this is a disease that's not occurring as the virus is present at high frequency in the body, it's occurring at a number of weeks after the infection. Most patients have already cleared the virus when they come in and are antibody positive. And therefore, as shown on the slide, we would suggest that most children who have a normal immune response will successfully clear uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 with either asymptomatic infection or minimal symptoms. And then for reasons that remain to be understood, those with a different type of immune response end up with an inflammatory response that as you develop T cell and antibody uh, immunity, um, somehow induces an inflammatory process. And this results in the febrile child with an elevated inflammatory response, the full spectrum of MIS-C and the Kawasaki-like disease. And there is growing evidence that this may be mediated by uh, antibody, um, or by T-cell. In the case of antibody, there was very good data from SARS-CoV-1 that antibodies against the spike protein are able to trigger macrophage activation. There is also recent papers in SARS-CoV-2 that immune complexes are able to cause macrophage activation, 
And it's interesting that immune complexes are well described in Kawasaki disease. Next slide, please. So coming to uh, the last uh, few things, um, we seem to have a good description of the dis disease and its manifestations epidemiologically. We have a, a desperate need to understand the biology of the disease better. And the papers that are beginning to appear, this is a, a from Gruber and et al, a um, bio-archive paper, so not yet peer reviewed, showing that um, MIS-C can be distinguished on a whole range of immunological features from COVID. So we have a long way to go in understanding this disease and really we need patients to be enrolled in biological research studies so that the research teams have the samples to look at to unravel this disease. Final slide, please. Um, and the last thing before opening for questions is there will be a session later on treatment of the disease, but it's clear that up till now, Treatment has been guided by our get best guess, by whether we thought the disease looked like Kawasaki disease or toxic shock or macrophage activation. And we've chosen immunological treatments that have worked in other conditions, but we desperately need randomized trials. And these are going to take a long time to become available. However, because we have a very large number of children already um, treated based on each clinician's best guess, um, it is possible to enroll patients that you've already treated into this international study called the Best Available Treatment Study, which aims to compare the rate of improvement in inflammatory markers and their outcome in your chosen treatment by comparing the rate of change of inflammation and the clinical condition and using propensity matching to control for the severity of disease. And I'd really appeal to everyone who's experienced this disease in any country to join the study. It's a truly international study. It's an online web-based uh, enrollment. It has de-identified data. And already there are 122 sites in 33 countries who've joined the study and we hope will be enrolling patients. And all clinicians who join the study will become parts part of an international BATS study group. So last slide, I just want to end by saying that the data from the UK that we've presented has been a huge collaboration of clinicians in multiple hospitals and different research teams and to acknowledge our research team at Imperial College, Jane Burns' team in San Diego and all our colleagues um, who've made data available to us. So thanks very much and happy to take questions. Uh, Mike Levine, thank you for that uh, wonderful overview. For, the, for this next section, we're going to focus on what is known about the treatments for MISC. Um, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by a panel of real experts in the area. All of the panelists tonight are part of the American College of Rheumatology Task Force that has laid out some guidelines um, for thoughts on treatment of MISC. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so um, we are going to talk about treatment um, in MISC. And what we want to do today first is to just review a little bit about the methodology that we used on the task force for the American College of Rheumatology. So I'm going to speak to that briefly. So the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology, convened this task force. Um, the idea was to, to provide expedited clinical guidance on MIS-C to clinicians who are seeing um, pediatric patients with this condition. 
Um, this task force was convened in May um, and the recommendations were uh, made in June. So certainly there's been a, additional publications since that time. The target audience were American College of Rheumatology members um, in North America, uh, pediatricians and other clinicians, but certainly there is a need um, to provide guidance to um, people in uh, less resource intense uh, settings. The primary products were clinical guidance recommendations from Ms. C. And it's important to note that these are not traditional guidelines um, that the American College of Rheumatology uses. That, uh, that is a very vigorous process um, that involves a lot of evidence review. And obviously with Ms. C, there was less evidence available and we wanted these guidelines to be made uh, available very quickly. Um, and so these are not traditional guidelines, they're termed guidance. Next slide. So, um, this guidance is based on the scant evidence that um, has been available from a C. It's certainly not meant to um, replace uh, best clinical judgment and decision-making with the patients. And this is a living document um, that is expected to change over time. And um, a manuscript reporting on these guidance um, is published in American Arthritis and Rheumatology and is available for review. So the members of the task force were selected based on their expertise in Kawasaki disease, and macrophagia activation syndrome and cytokine storm related syndromes. The panel included nine rheumatologists, two infectious disease physicians, two cardiologists, an ICU, um, critical care specialist, and two adult rheumatologists. Um, also note um, that over time we've really recognized, as um, Adrian mentioned, the involvement of um, the nervous system, uh, GI involvement, hematology involvement, and and also um, the importance of expertise from emergency department physicians, and that uh, this type of expertise will hopefully be incorpor incorporated in future iterations of the guidance. And so the methodology that was used um, was a modified Delphi technique. Um, the task force was broken into four work groups. We developed um, evidence reports and recomm preliminary recommendation statements. The entire task force was asked to vote on each recommendation statement. Voting was done anonymously, anonymously and asynchronously through email. And each statement was voted on using a nine-point scale of appropriateness. After the voting, there were two webinars used to discuss the outcomes. And finally, the guidance statements were created and drafted, and everyone on the task force had input on the final document. Uh, uh, statements that were approved had to have high appropriateness ratings and high levels or moderate levels of consensus. And so the result was um, uh, 40 guidance statements that covered diagnostic evaluation of MIS-C, cardiac management of MIS-C, and treatment of MIS-C. And today, during our question and answer session, we're going to focus on treatment of MIS-C. Okay, so Thanks so much for giving us the overview. I mean, it really is such a totally different time for all of us to try to be figuring out treatment to a disease as it evolves before our eyes. And we're lucky to have um, so many experts in inflammation with us tonight. I'm going to send the first question to Dr. Mehta and really thinking about when should immunomodulatory treatments be started in MISC? Should the diagnostic evaluation be fully completed before this is started? And is the timing different in patients who present with shock and really life-threatening manifestations? We have one patient on ECMO in our ICU right now in Texas. Yes, I think um, it's, uh, it's useful to take a step back and think about diagnosis. And I echo everything that Mike Levine said about um, two things. So really considering um, alternative diagnoses um, and then looking hard for bacterial infection. We've had some reports of patients 
um, who ultimately had leukemia, who were treated for MIS-C. Um, and so really thinking um, thoughtfully about other diagnoses. Um, and then the benefit of a multidisciplinary approach. Um, so we've had good success at CHOP at, at having a daily call between um, rheumatology, the PICU, cardiology, infectious diseases on any patient who has suspected MIS-C. And that's been really nice with, with getting each uh, service on board to kind of um, give their opinion. So in, in our um, uh, document, we really, we didn't, we didn't tackle creating diagnostic criteria because that's a pretty time intensive process, but we did come up with a diagnostic algorithm and we required that patients have a link to SARS-CoV-2, either um, PCR or antibodies or a um, history of exposure, and then um, two clinical features. And so some of the Kawasaki features, but then the neurologic symptoms that you mentioned, Jess, and then some GI symptoms. Um, and then um, if a patient had an epidemiologic link and some of those features, then we consider them under investigation. If they were in um, shock, then, um, then we uh, recommended doing the full diagnostic evaluation. Um, and if they weren't in shock, then we um, thought about a, a, we sort of set it up as a tiered approach. And so sending some basic labs, CBC, CEDRATE, CRP, CMP, um, SARS-CoV-2, PCR, and serologies. Um, and if a patient was inflamed and they were you know, either lymphopenic, had a low platelet count, were hyponatremic, um, hypoalbuminemic or a high white count, then you went to the second tier evaluation, which is BNP, troponin, procal, um, and things like that. And so if, um, if a patient was stable, um, really felt like they could undergo that full diagnostic workup, and if they had suggested features um, based on that lab workup, um, then we thought at that point, um, treatment made sense and starting with a single dose of IVIG. Um, if they were in shock and, and really hadn't been able to get to that um, full treatment um, and, and maybe we hadn't ruled out bacterial causes and things like that, even then um, there's some probably, it makes sense to potentially um, treat that patient with IVIG um, at that point if, it, if there are some suggestive features of um, MIS-C. Um, and then um, in terms of the steroids, I think we'll, we'll um, there's some specific questions about that later on. But if a patient didn't necessarily respond to that first dose of IBIG or they were um, um, in a little bit more critical condition than we, um, and they were um, being covered with antibiotics if, if bacterial infection hadn't been ruled out, then um, we thought that adding on steroids would make sense at that point as well. I wonder if I could follow up. Um, we heard a wonderful kind of discussion from uh, uh, Mike Levine and uh, Dr. Adrian Randolph about what is this entity? And um, a question for the panel here, I noticed in the, um, your guidelines, you didn't comment on um, do all patients uh, with uh, MIS-C, do all patients need, need treatment? I, I wonder, Dr. Young, could you take a, a, a stab at answering that first and perhaps Dr. Behrens? Sure, thanks a lot. I think. Uh... There are more questions than answers, unfortunately, for this group of patients and continue to have significant variation in care, really dependent on um, your threshold for worry for uh, uh, potential poor coronary outcome. So really, that is the basis of the concern, is that the potential for poor outcome exists in all groups. And Mike really showed it beautifully in the uh, previous, in his uh, wonderful talk, looking at the uh, epidemiology of the disease. And it's really much of the work, both clinically and in research right now, to try to identify these identifiers of those who are at high risk for poor coronary outcome, and to uh, really also identify predictors of treatment response. So uh, with only preliminary data, 
right now, the issue has been really trying to learn um, and borrow lessons that we've learned in Kawasaki disease. And really, this is the basis of uh, a lot of the worries of really ben um, uh, uh, of uh, balancing the risks and benefits of uh, treatment with no treatment and what your threshold of concern is. Um, and because of the ongoing reports, both formal as well as informal, uh, of poor coronary outcome in children that seem to have a milder version of the disease, um, it, is, uh, it has really um, guided some of the, um, the rationale for treating these um, children. Interestingly, these children also, at least in our institution in Toronto, seem to look similar biochemically than the children in the other ends of the more severe spectrum, uh, whether they're presenting with shock or really classic Kawasaki features. And ultimately, as they evolve in their um, uh, disease course, they develop significant thrombocytosis, really echoing what we see in Kawasaki disease. So um, although the jury's out, um, we have had a low threshold for treatment at SickKids, and we do treat these children much like others with Kawasaki disease and give them IVIG and antiplatelet therapy with aspirin. Dr. Perrins, do, do all uh, patients with MIS-C re require treatment? Um, I mean, so it's a loaded question in that, um, um, you know, in, in, a, in a sense of like having data to back up any statements, I can't, I, I, don't, I don't know. So I think as everyone has said in, in, in our hand is forced because we've got sick kids in our units and so we need to deal. Um, so I think we're all making our best guess as, been, as has been pointed out multiple times. I think um, our experience has been that uh, if you treat, identify and treat earlier, kids tend to turn around quicker and easier. Um, that um, that um, kids that have either because they had delays in presentations or because um, it had been more difficult to sort of pull the trigger. Sick kids just get sicker. Uh, and I think, you know, the, me, the the first line therapy, and I'm not going to stake a claim on what the right combination is, but some combination of IVIG and steroids, um, you know, is probably, I think as Ray sort of mentioned, in the grand scheme of things, um, not particularly high risk. And the risks that, that those medicines come with can be mitigated um, with other interventions. Um, there was a, somebody just put up a question about what do we do about kids that still might be bacterially infected. And I think, you know, you can cover somebody with antibiotics and give them steroids at the same time. So I think that we have erred much similar to what Ray has described uh, on the side of if you think you have MIS-C, um, you're getting some kind of therapy. Uh, we have kind of the stepwise thing at CHOP where we do IVIG first and then steroids. Um, and that may be more historical than, than, than anything. But I think that... Um, it strikes me just based on our experience in Philadelphia that uh, the, the benefits of trying to stop the inflammatory cascade earlier uh, likely outweighs um, uh, some of the, the issues we and may given, um, And given what you said, Dr. Young, earlier, is you're thinking about the, the rationale behind the use of IVIG is really based on the resemblance to Kawasaki's and really protection for the coronaries or are there other areas that are driving a rationale behind the, behind the use of IVIG? Again, I think many of the lessons thanks, um, are borrowed from Kawasaki disease given the lack of um, uh, data that we have to be able to um, uh, guide um, kind of a, a de novo generation of data. I think time will tell. And it, as uh, Lauren mentioned, first off, this is really the guidance is going to be um, uh, is going to be evolving as we have more data. But you're absolutely right. It's mainly borrowed from Kawasaki disease, borrowed from the knowledge that we know that 
um, hyperinflammation responds well in Kawasaki disease, IVIG. In fact, MAS um, originally, before biologics came along, responds well also to IVIG as well as steroids. So I think there's a lot of good um, uh, reasons uh, that it responds, whether it be the soluble mediators of inf inflammation that IVIG tackles or the, or the uh, cell surface uh, receptors that it binds and the signals that, that it sends in. All of those are important components, I think, in the equation. And uh, uh, time will tell. And research, the key is really to understand then how best to pick the children who are going to respond to IVIG versus the children who are going to respond to steroids versus those who require much more intensive upfront intensification of their therapy. What's the dose of IVIG? Uh, Lauren, uh, could you and, and uh, Kevin uh, in his cardiology KD hat, could you take a stab at that? What's the dose? Um, so as Ray uh, said, most of this is based on what we know about Kawasaki disease. And typically the dose for, for Kawasaki disease is two grams per kilogram. So there's a couple of points um, to think about. So not all centers are going to have access to all the IVIG um, that they need. And so um, at our center, we work really closely with pharmacy to have an idea of how much IVIG is available and if we can give all the patients that we need two grams a cake. Um, you know, one option would be to certainly for the MIS-C patients who present with Kawasaki disease features to give them the two grams per kilogram. And if there's any type of shortage, um, patients that don't have the full Kawasaki disease uh, features could get one gram per keg, though I think the two grams would be preferred. The other thing to keep in mind is that many of these children are much larger than um, our regular Kawasaki disease patients who are um, younger. And so giving two grams a kilogram to an obese adolescent can be quite a lot of IVIG. And so I think most centers are capping the dose at around maybe 70 um, to 90 grams. I'd be interested to see what other um, centers um, uh, on the panel are, are maxing out for their IVIG. Okay, one other caveat is that it can be quite a, a big volume load for those patients who are presenting in shock. And so um, sometimes giving it in uh, over two days, which isn't something we usually do in Kawasaki disease, may make sense uh, to divide the dose in half just, just from a volume perspective, especially for those patients who are uh, presenting in, in shock and where you're worried about um, aggressive volume repletion. Given that IVIG is um, in limited supply and not present in some places, should we should we assign and do use glucocorticoids first in people who don't have clear Kawasaki, you know, criteria? Should we make, make some set of criteria and give them steroids first, Lauren or Ed? Um, I, I personally, I think that's difficult just because, as um, Ray and Michael Levin's group have shown that. Patients without Kawasaki disease features can develop coronary artery aneurysms. And so um, I think our preference is, if at all possible, to use IVIG, certainly first. That's um, at our institution at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, I'd be interested to hear what other members of the panel um, think. Yeah, and the, the whole issue of what the effect of steroids in Kawasaki disease on aneurysms is, is a long and controversial issue. Um, there was a, there's a train of school of thought that thinks unopposed steroids, so giving steroids without IVIG actually worsens aneurysms. Um, although a lot of the Japanese data now suggests that steroids are quite protective. So I, I, don't, I don't think we know, even in Kawasaki disease, much less in MISC, what, what the effect of steroids, particularly steroids without MISC, is on coronary artery outcomes. And what dose of glucocorticoids uh, in MISC? We're, we're starting at... Um... Uh, two per kilo in in a patient, um, you know, if they're if they're stable, if they don't respond to that, we have had some patients patients who we've pulsed um, thirty per kilo up to a gram um, for three days. 
um, and agree that um, if you have life or organ threatening disease, um, we have absolutely used um, uh, the higher dose as uh, Jay was uh, mentioning for 30, uh, 30 per kilo up to a gram uh, has been uh, for those uh, children that have more severe disease. And I see in the chat, just to clarify that solimedrol or prednisone. I want to get to the anticoagulation. We have a lot of other questions, but there have been a lot of questions in the chat as well. Um, maybe we could start with um, Kevin, Dr. Friedman, telling us, you know, the thoughts on which patients should be receiving aspirin, which should be receiving unfractionated heparin or Lovenox, and which might need both. Yeah, it's a tough question. There's, there's absolutely no data. We, we, we have some first principles, which we know that certainly adults with um, similar hyperinflammatory conditions associated with COVID are, are seeing a tremendous amount of thrombosis, um, a lot less in kids. I think um, Adrian's paper reported, that's the only paper I've seen report on thrombosis, and it was about 4% of patients. Um, so we, we do know it's possible. We know their, anti -co their coagulation panels are markedly abnormal with really high fi uh, fibrinogens and, and very high dehydrogenase, as well as very activated platelets. Um, so the, a practical approach, which we've used, and I think is the best we can do, is to use antiplatelet dosing of aspirin, three to five milligrams per kilogram per day, in those patients who are, are not thrombocytopenic and have no other um, you know, specific increased risk of bleeding. So aspirin in most, especially those with any coronary artery changes like you would do in Kawasaki disease or KD features. Um, and then to titrate the degree of anticoagulation to the patient's individual risk factors. So um, if, with, in patients without bleeding risk factors, we've been pretty liberal in using at least prophylactic dose of Lovenox during the hospital stay and then use therapeutic dose of Lovenox in those who um, have any sign of LV dysfunction, coronary artery changes, or um, we've set up arbitrary D-dimer criteria that most people have used either D-dimer above three or five to um, suggest need for higher for a higher level of um, therapeutic anticoagulation. But admittedly, there's there's no evidence for those. And fortunately, at least my reading of the literature is, is thrombosis has been uh, amazingly rare in children compared to adults with this disease, although we certainly think they're at risk given, given their coagulation profile. Um, Kevin, can I just ask you to clarify, I, I heard you say uh, aspirin should be used in most should aspirin be used in all patients with MIS-C? I think if, as, this is my personal opinion, there is no data for this, but uh, I think uh, antiplatelet dosing of aspirin of three to five milligrams per kilogram is, is completely fine as long as they're not thrombos, significantly thrombocytopenic, say platelets below 60 or 80,000, or other, some other specific bleeding, um, bleeding risk factor. We we've, use a tremendous amount of uh, low-dose antiplatelet aspirin in uh, cardiology and, and Kawasaki disease, and we know it's very, very safe. Um, so I, th I think it's a reasonable first step in almost all patients, except for those with specific risk factors against it. And I definitely would use it in all patients with Kawasaki disease features or any coronary artery changes, or for that matter, LV dysfunction. And Dr. Mehta, is there... I was just, just going to add on to what Kevin just said about that, is that we do have some patients who don't have coronary changes at discharge, but then do um, develop the MET follow-up. And so maintaining them on, on low-dose aspirin, um, even after follow-up, or even after discharge, it makes sense. And Dr. Mehta, um, when, when do you use IVIG alone? When do you use glucocorticoids alone? Or do you always use them together? We, um, we, do, we have had some patients who we've used um, IVIG alone. If they're, if they're stable, if they don't have organ or life-threatening disease, um, we will just start with IVIG. Um, or if it's, if, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't established the diagnosis, like I mentioned, and, and ruled out uh, bacterial causes. Um, if, if there's anything, you know, if they're, um, 
any sort of life or organ threatening disease will will jump to steroids at that point or if they um, if the degree of um, cardiac involvement is is um, substantial then we'll we'll um, add on steroids to IVIG at, at the outset and do you change your therapy if they are if they have an enlarging coronary aneurysm already is there a change in therapy if they have an enlarging coronary aneurysm? No, we um, the answer to that, but I, 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 we personally have added um, additional therapy because that's what we would absolutely do for Kawasaki disease. Um, we believe strongly additional immunosuppression helps coronary outcomes in Kawasaki disease. So that would either be something like infliximab and akinra or, or some more simple steroids. Um, but again, there's no evidence. There's no definitive evidence for that. Uh, we're, we're running close on time, but um, Avina, I'm going to turn to you. One question for Dr. Mehta. Um, Resource-limited environments, what, what is your recommendation? Um, this is a tough question, and this is actually something that Lauren um, and I have um, been talking to the ACR about, is, is that can we, should we modify this, this guidance for resource-limited environments? And I think um, it's it's an ongoing discussion, and and I wish I had a good answer um, for you, but I think certainly steroids are probably more available um, than IVIG, um, and so it, it is something you consider. But there is the you know the the concerns that Kevin had brought up about unopposed um, steroid use, and so I I don't necessarily have a great um, answer uh, there. I don't know if anyone else does. Jeff, before we close this out, I'd love to hear Dr. Barron's thoughts on what drives us to move to other biologics like anti-cytokines and obviously we don't know what's the best one yet but what are the pushes to decide to go beyond the the glucocorticoid and IVIG treatment? Uh, most of the kids that we have treated at CHOP with steroids and IVIG you, you really you see a response probably within 24 to 36 at most 48 hours both in terms of cardiac and inflammatory uh, measurements. So if we're not seeing that, then we automatically think it's time to move on. And we have tended to move on either by increasing the dose of steroids. So going from that two per kilo to the magic 30 per kilo uh, pulse and or adding anakinra. So it's at that point in time that we are, we're using anakinra, which uh, I don't know. Again, it's like this best guess philosophy, right? Because it somehow sort of looks maybe a little bit like MAS and maybe a little bit like, um, like, you know, um, uh, other sort of systemic inflammatory diseases in which we'll use anakinra. Um, and I, I can't say that, I, I can't tell you that that's even worked or that's rational, but that's just sort of what we're doing. That's how we're using it. Um, it's probably as rational as picking IL-6 blockade or as picking infliximab. Um, but, but so that's what we've settled on that chop. I mean, it's, it's literally, there's no more evidence based on that. And Vinay, um, turn to you uh, for some uh, questions from the chat that we haven't addressed. Jeff, I think um, there were several questions about some practical things about sequencing. So um, wondering if maybe Jay or Lauren could comment on, is there any, um, any reason if you give IVIG first or anakinra or infliximab, is there any um, Im uh, is there any impact of a different sequence of giving them? Any rationale behind giving IVIG first? I, I think in Ms. 
and you see really the rationale of giving IVIG first is based on extrapolation from Kawasaki disease and protecting against the development of coronary artery aneurysms. We know that that is the best medication to do that. Um, we also know in MIS-C that patients, again, um, that don't meet full Kawasaki disease criteria can develop coronary artery aneurysms. So at our institution, we do give IVIG first. And as Ed um, mentioned, um, after IVIG and often if the patients are in the ICU steroids, the response is usually quite brisk within 24 hours, the patient's turning around. And if that's not the case, that's also when we add anti-cytokine therapies. Great. And then these, the, um, the second thing that has come up is kind of the biomarkers like procalcitonin or D-dimer. Um, what is it that kind of directs you to go from a prophylactic dose of anticoagulation to a treatment dose? And then again, are there any biomarkers that help you decide when to change back from a treatment dose of anticoagulation to a prophylactic dose? I think Kevin might be good for that question. Uh, we don't know. I mean, we've usually done um, treatment full dose when patients are sick in ICUs um, with evolving LV dysfunction or at risk for coronary changes, and then um, switch to um, prophylactic dose as, as, as during inpatient stays. Typically, people have, a lot of people have used D-dimers criteria cutoff and used either three or five as a D-dimer to, to treat um, with um, therapeutic dose uh, Lovenox, and then to switch to something uh, like a Pixaban or even just a prophylactic dose uh, Lovenox after that. And then, and then most patients have just gone home on either aspirin, uh, unless they have some specific um, higher risk category, like um, large aneurysms or ongoing dysfunction. Aspirin for how long, Kevin? We've just extrapolated from the Kawasaki disease literature. And like um, Lauren and Jay mentioned, there have been rare cases of later coronary artery aneurysms. So Typically, we think in KD, if you're, if you're followed up somewhere around three or four weeks post-discharge and you have a normal echo at that point, you're kind of in the clear. And I think the same would apply for MISC. So typically, we've kept aspirin on for those kids who have normal echoes at three, three to four weeks, stopped it then longer if there's coronary artery changes. And then uh, just before I turn it back to you, Jeff, uh, to finish up, um, are there, is there any rationale or has there been use of plasmapheresis or cytosorb or other extracorporeal therapies to remove um, to re to remove the antibodies. We haven't used cytosorb in in MIS-C. Um, we we do have it on hand for acute COVID um, infection at CHOP, but but haven't had to use it at all for for MIS-C. One last question I see in the chat here from Jose. Um, is there any laboratory difference between uh, MIS-C and a generalized autoimmune vasculitis? I think a couple, a couple lab markers I think have been really, really helpful in guiding um, the diagnosis of MIS-C um, is one of the things that we see pretty often is a really um, combination of a high, very high CRP and high procalcitonin and a CRP that's Often above 20 in a procal in the in the tens, um, which we don't tend to in the we don't tend to check procal in, in autoimmune vasculitis, but certainly we don't tend to see um, CRPs that high um, there. Um, and then the hyponatremia, the lymphopenia, thrombocytopenia, I think have, have been really helpful, and those aren't things that you necessarily expect to see in autoimmune vasculitis. Well, I, I know I speak for the entire audience when um, we thank you all for uh, joining us tonight and, and uh, sharing with us your knowledge 
Um, the guidance document from the American College of Rheumatology is uh, essential for us practicing. Uh, we all know that you're dealing with limited information, uh, but at least it gives all of us a construct to follow. It's rational, and we have no doubt that it will evolve, and so uh, we support and agree with it, making it a living document. Plans to continue with the phase three trial only in the critical subgroup. We would still advise caution, however, as these are preliminary data from adult patients and the trial is not complete and has not been peer reviewed yet. Next slide, please. IL-1 blockade is also being explored and I present here data from two adult observational cohort studies, both of which used historical controls receiving usual care. Anakinra is an IL-1 receptor antagonist and the short half-life and the safety profile are favorable aspects of this therapy. The data are not as um, strong or abundant for IL-1 blockade as it is for IL-6 blockade, but the familiarity with this drug and the safety profile um, lead us to provide the same conclusion that it could be considered. Uh, both studies here, adult studies, showed a lower hazard of death and there was no difference in side effects in those treated with Anakinra in these uh, studies. Next slide. I included this slide as a reference for the audience to provide some early data on some other immunomodulatory uh, therapies that are under investigation in COVID-19, but the data for these therapies are really too limited to provide recommendations for these therapies uh, outside of the setting of a clinical trial. Next slide. Finally, we wanted to spend a moment on anticoagulation. The hypercoagulable state has been well described in COVID-19 with characteristic lab abnormalities and multiple putative mechanisms. Existing data support a lower mortality in adults with elevated D-dimer who receive prophylaxis for VTE but no data exists currently to uh, support using full-dose anticoagulation as, as prophylaxis for VTE. I included in this the highlights of the NIH guidelines regarding anticoagulation. I think that the main points to take home from this table are that, according to the NIH, the diagnosis of COVID-19 should not change our usual standard of care for VTE prophylaxis in hospitalized children. And to draw your attention to the last bullet point, that when caring for patients who are rapidly deteriorating, particularly in pulmonary, cardiac, or neurologic status, the possibility of thromboembolic disease that could be treated as a cause for this deterioration should be investigated rapidly. Next slide. Thank you for the opportunity for uh, us to update our findings and to speak with, uh, with the group today. Thank you all um, for that wonderful overview. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.